Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in Tallahassee's All Saints District. This is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. I don't know about your world, Keith, as we say hello, but in my world, the sky is a little more blue. The grass is greener. All of a sudden, I'm sleeping better at night. Life's good. How about all, you? All is right with the world. It's amazing how things feel that way. Over this, a game. Over a game. Over a exactly. game. That at the end of the day, it's a game, right? 27 to 2. The uh, jokes will continue all off season at about 133 every day. Hey, Keith, do you have the time? Well, is it one thirty-three or is it twenty-seven to two? That's the big question. No, it was uh, an enjoyable night, certainly for those that uh, follow Florida State as we do. For those that played for Florida State as you did, interesting the way the game unfolded. I knew Florida State uh, was very good on defense. I knew Florida was having issues offensively. I didn't think it would unfold quite like that, but I'm happy it did, and we'll take it three in a row in this. I, I guess maybe I'll start there. Three in a row in Gainesville. And for Jimbo to be unbeaten in Gainesville in his tenure here, that's remarkable. I was not aware of that non-three-in-a-row thing. I just, I just never had that statistic uh, raised, uh, was, was just not aware of it. So the fact that Florida State, for the first time in the history of the rivalry, has been victorious three consecutive times uh, at the Swamp, uh, you know, given the length of the rivalry, 60th anniversary of it, uh, as they say, um, that's a pretty remarkable feat. And then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll underscore you know, the obvious that, that Jimbo's 5-1 and one against Florida, but I think the bigger thing, and we talked about this as it related to the Les Miles discussions of last week, which we'll talk about later in our program uh, this week, you know, he's 11-1 and one against the two main rivals. Uh, I don't think you could script it much better than that for the first six years of a coach's stint. Well, if you wanted to look at Les Miles and Mark Richt and pick out two reasons why they were on the hot seat and one of them's gone, in each case it would be quarterback play or development and success or lack thereof against your immediate rival. Rick struggling against Florida was starting a transfer from Virginia at quarterback this year. Les Miles hasn't developed a quarterback since Jimbo left, and he can't beat Alabama all of a sudden. Well, if you look at Jimbo, what's he doing? He's putting quarterbacks in the league every year he develops one, and he's 11-1 and against his rivals. There was a stat uh, associated with the Florida game as it related to Jimbo uh, in that when you look at Christian and EJ and Jameis, he's the only one that's ever sent three consecutive first-round quarterbacks oh, to the draft. I know, and then – you know, sort of the backlash to that is, well, Christian and Egypt. Right. Not his job but, to coach you up to the next you got, level. You got to get them there. You got to get them there. Your job to go from there. Yeah. All right. Hold those thoughts for a minute. Coming up on uh, today's edition of the Front Row, Tim Linnefelt will join us. We'll talk more about this FSU Florida game. We'll also talk uh, other FSU sports, the soccer team playing for a national championship again this weekend. Jared Shanker from ESPN is going to join us later on. He uh, covers the ACC and college football. We'll get his perspective on the ACC championship game the Heisman race, the college football playoff picture, those sorts of things. Do want to point out, as always, that this portion of our program is uh, brought your way by Madison Social. It was a, a great year at Madison Social. They're not through yet. Uh, I know I personally, on my calendar, have a couple of holiday parties coming up at Madison Social. You probably do. That's well, something KJ. to not forget about. If you're late, they may may have some availability issues, but it is a great place for an office party, a, a neighborhood party. Uh, a get-together of some fashion, uh, they're, they're perfect for it. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw a Madison Social tweet yesterday that happy hour this week begins at what time, do you suspect? I would suspect it is either one thirty-three or 27 to 2. You are exactly right. So <laughs> enough said about Madison Social. That is, that is well done, as always, by them. All right, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things to talk about in this, this game. I, I'm going to start somewhere that I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. And to do this, you have to be a little bit critical of Coach Bowden and his era. But one of the things, and I think you would agree, during Bobby's tenure, and I don't know, I wasn't here for the first part of his career, but certainly the part I was here, to me he got conservative at the end of big games. And so if you look at this game the other night, you think about the safety. Now that's in the fourth quarter, FSU's coming out on its own 20 or wherever they are. Jimbo doesn't hesitate to call a pass. Now they screw it up and don't block it right. It ends up being a safety, which was fortunate instead of a. And where was the flag? Can you let me finish my thought, and then we have that discussion? Sure. Okay. So the very next series, 
FSU gets the ball. It's middle of the fourth quarter. Three runs, you burn three minutes of the clock, and you punt. What does he do on first down? He hits that out route to Bobo Wilson. And so my point is, I don't think Jimbo gets enough credit for this in terms of he truly coaches aggressively and coaches to win. I, I, th- I think his game management is is really, really strong, and people maybe take it for granted or overlook it, but there is a method to his madness and and I to me that really stood out in that game the other night. And, and the only thing I disagree with you, and it's not a disagreement. It's it's like uh, you know redheads and brunettes and blondes. On that first on that route, it's an out route, so so Sean can can ditch it if it's not open. You know it wasn't across the. So my point is we're going to focus in on pass versus no pass, which is how Coach Bowden was raised, and that's why he was the way he was. Jimbo's not afraid of the pass, but he's still a little bit protective because he'll put his players in a position where it's either a win or don't lose. Mm-hmm. There's not a downside. Uh, now, of course, if you get the rush, you fumble the ball, you get it in the end zone, uh, you end up with a safety. I acknowledge that. But that's the other thing to me that's interesting about Jimbo is he those those things that he does, they're calculated. They're not just, I'm going to throw the ball. They're calculated down-distance time of game to put his players in the best positions to achieve or not fail. And I think that's a pretty unique perspective that he brings to play calling. Well, his and his situational uh, football, I mean, he talks about it a lot. This week he talked on his coach's show about the significance of the blocked field goal because if that field goal is good and you add it to the safety, well, guess what? It's a one-possession game at that point. Correct. Florida, a touchdown and two. So, I mean, he just he manages all that so well, and I'm not trying to demean Coach Bowden. I, I, no, 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 not I, at all. I, I just think, to me, it's a noticeable thing that doesn't get talked about a lot when you look at how Jimbo coaches in the end of these big games. And Now, that said, uh, defensively, tremendous effort. Whoa, 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 whoa. Where's the flag? Go back to the flag. Was, was it Maverty? Mavity, Mavity that got the ball, oh, in the th- end zone and threw it forward. I don't know the rule. I know in the pros, if you have a holding call in the end zone, it's an automatic safety. I don't know what the college rule is. I just didn't look it up. But if he had been, if the flag had been thrown for intentionally batting or throwing the ball, is it an automatic safety? And my point is, was he doing it to draw the safety? Because that ain't the way you want to throw the ball no. to draw the safety. I don't know what the rule is either, but I don't think he was doing it because he I knew the, the rule and thought it was a way. safety. I think throw the ball the other way. I think he, to the moment, he was thinking, "I'm going to get this out of the end zone, so it's not a Florida." But touchdown. throw it the other way. I don't disagree. <laughs> I don't disagree. My issues with Mavity would be more related to the many times that he swung and missed when he was trying to block Strike somebody three. in front of him during the course of the game. I agree. Uh, but I also, it was just an interesting thing to I, me. I also, and, and the commentators didn't talk about it at all. Well, how about here's an interesting thing. 99% of the time when you kick following a safety, you punt so that you can get the hang time. Now, I know what Jimbo was thinking and doing the math on this. I mean, Aguayo basically kicks eight yards deep in the end zone from the 35. So if you kick from the 20, you're thinking that the ball is going to go to the, the five, five or, or six. seven. But I think he tried to muscle up so much, he mishit it, it goes to the 20, and that ends up being a huge return that there was a penalty on. I didn't ask Jimbo about that, but you know, normally you would just get the hang time and roll the dice. That broke Plus, Beatty was kicking way. the ball well in that particular ball game, and 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 you can go back and listen to to our pod uh, podcast uh, of our, our earlier shows when we were absolutely demeaning Beatty early. I in think the year. everybody has come around and, and said me a culpa this year on Beatty, and we've all acknowledged that he had a good year. He had a good year. There's there's one game to go in Beatty's career. I should knock on this, but for four years of trepidation about him costing a Florida State a game, it hasn't happened. Correct. I mean, that's just the reality of it, and Florida State's been pretty good. Yeah, but he still needs a haircut. I, when I was looking at the final – well, that's you'll have to take that up with Casey. When I was looking at the final stat sheet after the game, though, it was noticeable to me, though, when you looked at every statistic on that page, yards per play, yards rushing, yards passing, uh, punting average, even though Florida punted well, field goals, red zone. Florida State won every one of those individual battles. I mean, Florida punted for 45 yards a kick or whatever. FSU punted for 47. They couldn't make a field goal. Aguayo makes two. Kickoff, even the kickoff average and net kick and, and net punt was better for Florida State. So Gator fans can look at it and say, well, if we had a different quarterback, it would have been a different game. Well, sure. And if Jameis Winston was playing his redshirt junior year at FSU right now, it would have been a different game, too. I mean, you can play that what-if game all day. The mo- the thing I was most proud of in the whole of this game was Florida State's ability to run the ball in the fourth quarter. 
Uh, that's when, if you can get your ground game going when you've got the lead, that is the true testament of old-school Southern football dominance. And that's exactly what Florida State did to Florida in that fourth quarter. Yeah, and if you think about these games and just compare the Clemson game and this game, they were similar in that FSU in a hostile environment got the lead. But what was different is the way Florida State finished just a couple weeks later. So impressive steps. All right, Tim Linnefeld, our Seminoles.com insider, is coming up next. We will uh, pick his brain if there's anything left to pick in there about uh, this game and this season. That's when we continue right after this on the front row. Listening to the front row with Tom Block and Keith Jones only on 97.9 ESPN Radio. Here's Tom and Keith. We are back on the front row. Victory over Florida edition here. Tom Block and Keith Jones with you, and it's uh, time for our Seminoles.com insider report. Now, normally I would point out that on Seminoles.com, each and every uh, home game in Monday. What can you see, Keith? You can uh, catch Coach uh, Fisher's press conference, both post-game press conference and his Monday at 1 o'clock press conference. But there was no Monday at 1 o'clock press conference this week. No, and we don't know when the press conference will be next week, but I would throw out there that I'm sure there will be one once the bowl announcement is made, so you can catch that there. But more importantly, you can get all your holiday shopping done at uh, shop.seminoles.com. They probably have a few shirts, maybe even a couple clocks that are – have the time permanently what set time would it be to 133 tim, tim, what time would it be is it 133 or 27 to 2 where you are tim i gotta be honest you guys i've never been much of a math guy so uh, it takes me a little longer to figure that stuff out you need but, a visual uh, is that's what you're saying but so so 1 133 is that what we're that yeah. what all right i gotta i gotta write that down yes that would be 27 sure. to 2 in 27 case. to 2 i got it i got, got it. it this so. is uh tim linnefelder seminoles.com insider tim guaranteed a victory over florida last week so i do want to congratulate you on that do we have that tape cued can we play that back or are we just gonna our listeners will just take our our our, our word for well they well they remember it they listen yeah exactly <laughs> well what what are your impressions uh, i mean what stood out to you in that game tim uh, you know, a, a few things. One, uh, I thought that Sean McGuire did a nice job settling down. Um, he looked just a little anxious, a little jumpy maybe to, to start the game. And then when uh, when they went on that long drive, he made the nice play to, to Kermit. Uh, I think it was the, the really long game. And, and the, the play for the touchdown to Jeremy Kerr is the kind of thing that, you know, is a, is a coach's nightmare until the, the ball is actually caught by one of the good guys. It just looked like everything there were so many things that could go wrong on that play and then and the one thing that could go right actually did and it seemed like after that sean and, and the offense settled down uh you know honestly and I, and I don't mean to one take away from from what florida state did and i don't mean to cast any type of aspersions on uh on another program but man i just i i, I was looking at florida and, and wondering how they they won 10 games i know that they've had some issues at, at quarterback with will greer suspension but that, that offense just I don't know that they would play another game and, and, and score uh, at least not score a touchdown, uh, and then their field goal kicking isn't good either. Um, it just it just seemed like they have a long, long way to go, and, and maybe some of those deficiencies were were masked by the fact that they were able to win ten games. Let me ask you this because I've been thinking this. I mean, Jimbo liked Trayon Harris enough to recruit him at one point. I don't know if ultimately he thought he would move him to another position or what, but. Why doesn't Florida run Treon more? I mean, if he's an athlete, and, and clearly he is because he evaded the sacks a few times, why are we not seeing some of that? I mean, and shouldn't they do that this week against Alabama? What do you hold him out for? That's a, that's a good question, and I don't know enough about Jim McElwain to know you know his philosophies as a coach or what he wants to do. I can only assume that that's, that's not what he you know has in mind for his offense, but at some point you, you have to adapt. And, and you know, it's, a, it's an interesting observation because as well as Florida State's defense played on Saturday night, and they did, uh, you know, and it's not just, you know, Florida, Florida State's defense did a good job. You know, there were times when Treon would escape the pressure, get out of the pocket, uh, and he scanned downfield, and then he just couldn't make the throw. He either missed a receiver or didn't see a receiver, and, you know, he either ends up getting sacked or thrown it away. And then those are the type of plays that can, can hurt you, uh, of course, if, if, you, if the pressure doesn't bring down the quarterback initially, which happened several times on Saturday. You know, if he has time and can look down the field and make a throw on the run or get outside, 
I mean, that can be really hard to defend as a defense. And, and he could do the first part of it really well, I thought. I mean, he did look athletic and, and, and tough to bring down, tough to get a hold of. Uh, just once he got himself out in space, he couldn't do anything with it. One of the biggest things, uh, Tim, that I took away from the, the 2015 game, and, and this may be a reach, but uh, I'll go back to the uh, McGuire to, uh, touchdown pass. Um, to me, that play solidified in Florida State fandom that McGuire could be, should be, and will be your starting quarterback next year. I think he definitely has the inside track. Uh, you know, look, I, I think that it's going to be – uh, a true competition it's going to be a true race like we've seen in the last couple of years but you know i think there's just something that comes with being a florida state quarterback and, and winning a game at florida uh you're almost like a you know a made guy so to speak so i've been watching i uh, rewatching the sopranos the last couple of weeks so i guess that's sort of thing on the brain but uh but yeah uh, you know I, I think that that it kind of gives some legitimacy to his candidacy, if you will, uh, I think that you know the number one thing, and this was true before Saturday, but it's definitely true now. Uh, is you know his teammates believe in him. Uh, you can tell no, that they no rally around him. That, yeah. they, they follow him, um, and knowing that you know coming in the next spring he'll be a fifth year senior. Um, you know if we can assume uh, a degree of improvement, not to you know not not to uh, say that he hasn't done a nice job, but he can still get better uh, if he does that. And, and we know he has the support of the locker room. You know, I think he's got a pretty good chance. And the people you've talked with, and, and, and I've been racking my brain, I don't remember a more dominant Florida State victory over Florida. I mean, I know we talk about the choke at Doak and, and the 31 31 time. two years ago? I, was this game in 2015 ever in question? Yeah, they, they were different, you know, because Florida did do a pretty nice job of holding on at the start of that 2013 game, and then Kelvin Benjamin kind of turned into the Hulk, and, and, and that was that. Um, this one, you know, once once Florida State got up by 10, which is why the touchdown was so important, I thought. Once they got up by 10, I you almost felt like it was over, you know. Um, and and I don't know that the, you know, the, the I guess talent disparity isn't the word, but the, the disparity between the two teams two years ago was so great. I, you know, I think you know you almost expected Florida State to do that. Whereas at least going into this game, I think most of us thought that Florida State had a pretty good chance. I know I did, um, but I thought it would be close. I didn't think Florida State would be able to score. Certainly, I didn't think they get anywhere near 27 points, and uh, I thought Florida would do a lot better than than two. So, uh, so yeah, just from from that perspective, between two teams that I think most thought were evenly matched, and probably at the end of the day are pretty close to evenly matched. Yeah, it was, it, it's hard to find one that. That's much more dominant than that. I go back to the quarterback thing here, and I know Florida just got a commitment from the kid in uh, in Wakulla and Crawfordville, and I don't follow recruiting that much overall. But am I right in thinking that if if Florida State's players had stayed all four years, that Jameis would be on this team? Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, Coker would be on this team still. Yes. along with McGuire and Francois. Obviously, you wouldn't have recruited Golson in that scenario. And meanwhile, at Florida there's nothing i mean i mean there was greer who suspended i mean how did they get that well, we could have dante fowler still but yeah well and think um, about you know and, and you can play the projection game but think about what this florida team would be with jacoby Brissett. yeah they'd be better and that's one you know i think when when people were sort of writing their requiems for the will muschamp era they they, they looked at the the decision to go with driscoll ahead of jacoby Brissett as one of those things and and you know they, they kind of was uh, not the nail in the coffin, but when you're trying to find reasons to fire a guy, that was a pretty big one. Um, it's interesting, man, and, and don't underestimate what uh, what going four and eight can you know can do. I mean, that's that's really going to hurt. And you know, we saw it here uh, in the mid 2000s. It's, it's not a coincidence that when Florida State was going through its rough patch, that Florida was having its best run uh, in program history, really. And so, you know, now we're seeing something similar where, you know, Florida can't seem to get it together. And maybe they are still, you know, that we'll, we'll see how things play out. But in the meantime, you know, Florida state is enjoying a run of unprecedented success. And, you know, it, 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 I do think it tends to be a cycle, but, uh, I also think it's important that when your rival is down, you better take advantage and, and Florida state's doing that for sure. Let me ask you this, Tim, you know, Jimbo to me has not, been recognized nationally as being you know on that top list of upper echelon coaches 
uh, you know, I forget who it was that had him ranked number 19 or whatever in some list of top. That was, uh, that was Matt Hayes of the Sporting News. Okay, so if you don't, I've heard a promo on this station uh, about that. But if you don't want to have it, if you want to say that Saban and Urban are, are, you know, above them because they've won multiple national titles and they've done it at multiple schools, I get that. But then when you get to the next tier, I don't see how Jimbo's not in it. But my question is, I feel like there, it's more of a statement, I guess, but I feel like this 10 and 2 season in a rebuilding year without Jameis. Uh, in some ways, is almost helping Jimbo's reputation nationally more than going twelve and one last year with Jameis after the national title. Do you do you buy any of that? Particularly amongst oh, what we'll call the learned people, you know, the people yeah, that really understand college football. <laughs> I don't think there's any question. Uh, well, I don't think any question that it should. We'll see whether or not it actually does moving forward. And and you know, it seemed like nationally the knock on Jimbo Fisher, which makes no sense whatsoever to me. Uh, is that he's a great recruiter, but that you know he only wins because he has such high-level talent, as if being a great recruiter isn't an extremely, extremely uh, part of the extremely important part of this job. That so, that also completely sells short the fact that he's a pretty good game, uh, you know, tactician and manager. Keith and I were just talking about the fact that he coaches aggressively. He threw in the fourth quarter, even after the safety. You know, he's not getting conservative there at the. I mean, I think that's really selling short the way he strategizes about a game. For those of you, no, for those of you that are screaming at your radio right now, yes, he learned from NC State a couple of three <laughs> years ago. Well, and the question is, how many programs have sustained excellence? I mean, how many programs win national titles without having really good players? I mean, that sounds like a silly question that you roll your eyes at, but when you're talking about you know docking the per- the perception of a coach because he recruits really good players and is it them or is it him? Well, you know he's the reason they're there. <laughs> so it, it always seems kind of silly to me. But to, to get back to your original question, no, no I think so because the, uh, the, the the big question surrounding Jimbo heading into this year, and, and I think this is fair to a degree. If you want to key in on one player, uh, is Jameis Winston. You know, the, Jameis took Florida State to unforeseen heights. Uh, midway through the early part of Jimbo Fisher's tenure, and the question is, how are they going to do afterward? And, and I think given the circumstances, uh, you have to say that the post-Jameis life, and not just post-Jameis life, but post uh, lots of NFL players' life, has, has been pretty good. Uh, you know, I think at the beginning of the season, if you had said 10-2 and two with a loss at Georgia Tech um, and a loss at Clemson, who has turned out to, I think, be better than any of us thought they would be, uh, you'd probably be pretty satisfied. I know, granted, some of that, a lot of that is based on the idea that we thought Georgia Tech was going to be a lot better than they are, but even still, uh, you know, ten and two in a year where you lose so many guys to the NFL and, and really seem to be kind of transitioning from from one era of, of the program to the next, if you will. Uh, I don't know how you could be anything less than thrilled with it. Let's switch sports real quick in our last couple minutes, Tim. Uh, the soccer team is going to try to defend a national title this week. I've seen them play a couple of times uh, in this NCAA tournament, and uh, they look as good to me right now as they have at any point this year. What's your thoughts on uh, their matchup against Duke and then the likelihood that they do repeat? Uh, you know, I, I, I think they have a really good chance. I think they're uh, extremely talented, and the most important thing to remember uh, now, and it's been this way for a couple of weeks, is they have their full complement of players. They have uh, a handful of girls who are, are, are play for their national team. They, they, you know, Mark Krikorian recruits around the world, has a lot of internationals. Uh, and there was times this season where he didn't have his full roster because they were off fulfilling obligations for their national teams. Well, you know, obviously, if a, if a, if a player is good enough to play for her national team, she's probably one of the best players on your team uh, at Florida State. And, and we're talking about you know half a lineup essentially, uh, six kids that that were gone. And then the the what I'm getting here the the last time Florida State played Duke it was at Duke. They played them to a zero zero draw. And that was with all their internationals were gone. They they didn't have their full uh, their full roster. So you're playing that team that, that couldn't beat you when you didn't have uh, your full roster. And now you've got your full roster uh, to go for the College Cup. So I don't know how you couldn't see Florida State as anything but a favorite in that. Um, and then I'll admit that I haven't watched a whole lot of Penn State or Rutgers this year, so I don't know too much about uh, about that side of the bracket. But uh, but I do know that uh, an interesting plot twist, uh, if it comes to that, is that. Penn State's head coach is a, a former assistant here at FSU and, and has a tight relationship with uh, with Mark Corian, so it could be uh, a fun little subplot there if Florida State were to meet Penn State in the national championship game. Interesting. Tim, there is this little thing called the Internet, and you do have between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. that you could be looking at soccer footage if you were I know, I know, and, I, and I, well, I, I, I need to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm going up there this weekend to, uh, to carry, so watching the, uh, the, the Rutgers breakdown 
is on my to-do list, but I haven't gotten the. You probably could just go to Seminoles.com and look at the content there to break everything down. Am I right? Well, that's, a, that's a pretty good idea. That's yeah. a pretty good idea. <laughs> in our last few minutes here, uh, Tim, I, I, I cover them. I've watched every minute of every game. I've never seen two freshman men's basketball players have a bigger impact through five games on a program anyway. Oh, gosh, yeah. No, I, they, they've lived up to the expectations and more, I think, and the expectations were – were really really high for for both Dwayne Bacon and, and Malik Beasley, but to you know both be the, the top two scores, uh, not just on the team, but I think they're the lead freshman scoring in, in the nation, the top two freshman scores in the country. And granted, we're only a few games into the season, but uh, I don't know that you could ask much more of them. And, and you know, it's really interesting, um, and to kind of lead into tomorrow night's game at, at Iowa. I, I talked to Dwayne Bacon for the first time yesterday, and he was pretty honest and forthcoming about that Hofstra game. He said that they had. You know, had played so well and run through the teams that they had played to that point in the season that they went into the Hofstra game a little bit overconfident. And, and, you know, that's exactly the type of team, that Hofstra team this season is exactly the type of team that could beat a younger, talented, but maybe, you know, maybe less experienced team. That Hofstra had, you know, guys who played together for four years, a bunch of seniors, guys that could shoot. And, uh, and Dwayne Bacon says, you know, look, we, we know we can beat them. We know we're good enough to beat them. It's just we you know, just for whatever reason, came in overconfident, didn't take them seriously enough, uh, and, and they were able to beat us. Uh, so moving forward, you, you're going to, to, to play an Iowa team that I think had some expectations uh, and has yet to live up to those expectations and really were kind of struggling. And, you know, it, it seemed like a pretty good uh, uh, good book, and if you will, for the lesson learned against the Hofstra, uh, excuse me, the lesson learned against Hofstra and the Virgin Islands can now come into play uh, when you go to Iowa and say, hey, look, you know, this team might be struggling, but if you don't take them seriously, uh, they can beat you. And I, and I know that's kind of, you know, sports one-on-one, coaching one-on-one, but for a freshman who are five games in to their collegiate careers, I, I think that's a pretty valuable lesson to be learned. It can be uh, pretty useful going forward. Well, the staff is, is unbelievably high on their basketball IQ, and I think that's just part of it. Absolutely. And, and it's something that we talked about, I think, a, a week or two ago, just the idea that, you know, Florida State for a long time could get really athletic kids or they could get kids that had good basketball smarts, but they rarely had guys that, that had that combination in the same player. Uh, and these two guys certainly seem to. And, and that's, you know, it's just a different type of player than they've had here, really, maybe ever. Uh, and obviously, Leonard's had some great players come through here, but I don't know that he's ever had one player with the same combination of talent, athleticism, and basketball smarts. Uh, much less two, so it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's going to be a fun year, no question. Tim, it was a fun football season. Uh, we appreciate the insight you've added each and every week, and uh, we're not letting you off the hook. We just won't talk as much football potentially uh, in weeks going forward, but thanks for joining us as always. Of course, guys. Look forward to it. All right, that is our Seminoles.com insider, Tim Linnefelt. Keith and I will uh, come back, react to some of that conversation as we roll on here with the front row. Need no education. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in Tallahassee's All Saints District, this is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones, presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. And we are back on the front row. Thanks so much for uh, tuning to us. We do appreciate it. Uh, this portion of our program brought your way by the Flying Bear Great American Grill at uh, 6265 Old Water Oak Road, also known as uh, Head North on Thomasville, past Walmart. On Look the on, left. On the left. There it is. Uh, open uh, Sunday through Thursday, 11 to 9, Friday and Saturday, 11 to 10. Uh, really good place. Tell Brian that Keith and I uh, sent you his direction. Uh, he's doing a great job there. Flying Bear Great American Grill. Little disclaimer here, uh, as you're listening, you may have heard Tim uh, Linnefelt reference the game against Iowa tomorrow night. Full disclosure here, because Keith is with the basketball team and travels with the team, it's actually, as we sit here, we've, we are uh, recording on Tuesday, and so we have completely rolled the dice seminal headline style here. This means that invariably, uh, Jimbo will take another job, uh, six guys will declare for the draft, uh, Notre Dame will join the ACC, and uh, I don't know what else will happen in this 24-hour period, but that's likely to happen G- since we've recorded. Given our luck. 
Well, given Seminole headlines, uh, luck. I'm going to I'm going to blame that all on those guys. Anyway, wanted to frame that. So, bottom line is, you're listening to this. We do not know the college football playoff rankings, which uh, came out Tuesday night, but subsequent to our taping. Nor do we know the ACC uh, honors the players of the year, coach of the year, and that sort of thing. Well, the coach of the year is Dabo, and the player of the year is Deshaun. Any other questions? Rookie of the year. Uh, defense will be uh, uh, Ramsey or, or Derwin, rather. Uh, offense will be the uh, running back from Pittsburgh. Okay, so there you have it. Hold Keith Jones to it. Well, did you vote? This, this, yes, you did. Yes. See, I give Keith credit because I am not a, a voting member there, and and I'll be honest, and this will sound. It gets tedious. Like, I look at the list that came out yesterday, and and I'll just say this, and I don't mean to pick on the guy too bad, but Travis Rudolph is not the third-best receiver in the ACC to be a second-team All-ACC selection. And so what happens in these, and I know because I used to vote in these, I know Florida State. I see Florida State every week. I see the opponents they play one time a year. Other than that, my schedule is such that I'm really not watching whole games a whole lot. So it comes time to vote for the first team left guard or another linebacker, and you pull out the ACC stats and you go, this guy has this many tackles, I'm going to vote for him. Or this guy has this many catches, I'm going to vote for him. And what you get is a media compilation of an all-ACC team, which, and I don't know how you vote, you've seen the teams more, you may study it and have spreadsheets and really put a lot into it, but it's biased based on who you cover is the point I'm making. It is, but having said that, uh, I'm still old school. I've been a long-time member of Ask Me, and, and uh, it's part of my responsibility as being a member of Ask Me, and uh, I take it seriously. Well, good. No, I give you credit. I probably should get back into the fray and do that. But uh, anyway, the coaches do an all-ACC team as well, which will come out next week. And to me, that one's a little – I think the way that works is you can't vote for your own players, but you get a more true representation in my mind because they watch the tape and grade the tape and say, you know what, that lineman really is the best lineman. Right. That sort of thing. Anyway, I didn't mean to digress into into all of that, but we did anyway. Let's go back to the coaching carousel thing. Understanding again that there's, you know, a 24 hour vacuum from when we're sitting Mark here. Mark Rick will already so be the, named the coach of Maryland yeah, by the time this airs. No, I, I more I want what I want to talk about is this. Uh, you know, the coaching fraternity gets together, and they all obviously are going to come out. Dabo said it. Nick said it. Jimbo said it. You know, what are we coming to in this coaching profession when guys that have been successful like Mark? are forced out if you will and i get that 145 wins in 15 seasons and i get it but if you're georgia you're saying we're paying them x we gave them a decade and a half and we don't have a national title to show for it and really here's here's where i am if this was 15 years ago when coaches were making a million and their coordinators were in the one to 200 range and basically if you're in a situation where you're terminated you got to find work to support your family that's one thing but if the coaches want to go back to having five or six or seven years to get their program in place well just go ahead and walk your salary back to one to two million and pay your coordinators one to two hundred and there won't be such demand and expectation i mean it's a double-edged sword that way to me that's the economics of it the reality of it and and i did not come up with this idea and and i've heard it from a couple of different people i'm not even going to give them credit for it uh but the the problem with the coaching carousel right now is Alabama because Alabama has been dominant for, for the last six or seven years, and any other team of significance thinks they ought to be able to do what Alabama's been able to do. And as a result, the leashes have gotten short. So you can blame all of this on, on Saban. Well, how about where we sit covering Florida State right now when you look at Bobby's tenure, and now Jimbo, for all the – consternation and worry over the last few years that he's going to go to West Virginia, he's going to go to LSU, he was going to go to Texas, all those things. Here he sits six years in, and as dominant as he's been against his rivals, as we talked about earlier, if he wants to, he's set up at least at this point to be a 10 to 15-year guy here, I would say, unless the bottom just drops out. But here's here's the thing that's frustrating about it, and we talked about this. I talked about this on the show last week. No, you didn't. Damn sure did, okay, well, and, and we damn sure beat first. the Gators. All right, I'll see if we talked about it or not. What did we talk about last week? Jimbo was never a candidate for the LSU job. That was everybody's thought process. No, nah, no, nah, I think it went further than that. It that went doesn't further mean than that. he didn't consider it. That doesn't mean that Sexton didn't talk about it. That doesn't mean there wasn't conversations about it. But the, he was never a serious candidate for that job because LSU had bumped Bungled. Let's bungled. go with bung- bungled. Bungled everything up so bad, and the money was so big that it was never going to work. So, and, and Jimbo was never a candidate for the Texas job. 
The only job of those three that you've mentioned that I would even remotely worry about is West Virginia because he's going to back home. And my point is, we the media have made this an issue. Oh well, that's that's the way everything is, and the, the media is comical too because. Uh, they get on the hype train on all these things, and then they backtrack about everything and cover for themselves. So that's what's ironic about what you just said is of all the jobs that Jimbo's been linked to, the one I was worried least about was West Virginia because I've had plenty of conversations with Jimbo, and Jimbo is – what's the number one thing for Jimbo when it comes to his program? Recruiting. Players. Yep. Players. How many players are in West Virginia? Not a lot. Well, I know, I understand it's where he's from. I read an article on one guy they let get away, a gentleman – whose hometown is Morgantown, West Virginia. Don Knotts, Barney. <laughs> they let him get away. My point is, I never th- I never worried about that one because there's not enough players there. So you can, in Louisiana, there's plenty of players, but Jimbo's got this. I think if this job was open three years ago, 2012, maybe, probably 2012 before the national title, uh, I think Jimbo makes a serious run at it. But if you look at, I mean, since that time, He's got Florida State's recruiting up to par. He got the support staff where he wants it. He has a player's dorm. He has an indoor practice facility. They're redoing the locker room. They're building the lounge. And oh, by the way, they won a national title two and years ago. And they're redoing ago. the stadium. And they're redoing the stadium. And but here's I one guess other that's thing. a big one. That let I me put at. let me nip one thing in the bud from this person's media perspective. Jimbo doesn't get a renegotiated contract at the end of this year. It's status quo. If everything goes the way it should next year. That's when you renegotiate the contract. Yeah. So for all those people saying we've got to give Jimbo more money to make sure he stays, I, that this isn't the year to do that. Well, and I think, and we need to wrap up this segment, there's been some talk about, you know, a lot of like USC filled its position from within. Well, because big name coaches, you know, aren't as apt to move around. Well, guess what? Now that you're paying five and six million and you're giving them everything they need. You don't have to job hop to go do that. I mean, a lot of coaches are sitting pretty right now, so you don't have to switch what, jobs. What can Jimbo do with $8 million a year that he can't do with $5.2 million a year? Exactly. All right, we're going to step aside, come back, and we'll talk uh, ACC championship game, sort of bigger picture here uh, with an ESPN expert. We'll do that on the other side of this timeout here on the front row. Listening to the front row with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Got a question? Email them at the front row at 979ESPNRadio.com. Here's Tom and Keith. We are back on the front row. Tom Block, Keith Jones with you. Florida State celebrates a uh, victory over Florida. What time you got, Keith? It's uh, one thirty-three, also known as twenty-seven to two. Appreciate it. He's always here for the time check. We're gonna we're gonna get beyond FSU Florida here though, and talk uh, ACC and sort of bigger picture. And uh, Jared Shanker from ESPN uh, is uh, kind enough to join us right now. I asked Jared his title, and he said, "I don't know, ACC reporter, FSU reporter, college football reporter. How about jack of all trades, Jared? Does that does that fit for you? That that works for me. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of all over the place, but enjoy just covering the sport as a whole." Yeah, well, and we appreciate the work you do. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to talk uh, ACC championship game, so let's let's start there and sort of the, the ACC as a whole. What's your impression of where the ACC stands in the sort of the conference pecking order when you talk about national perception and how much that may have improved over the last two to three years with FSU and now what you've got this weekend with Clemson and Carolina? Yeah, clearly it, it's an ongoing uphill battle for the ACC game. Uh, some recognition to gain some respect. Uh, all you have to do is turn on the TV, turn on a, a talk radio show, even listen to some of the coaches talk about it. Dabo Swingy and Jibbo Fisher uh, over the last 24-48 hours both chiming in on how they think that the ACC is disrespected. Uh, and at the end of the day, it, it's kind of the same thing that everybody's been saying for the last few years is that you do have elite teams in Clemson and Florida State this year, North Carolina potentially. Um, just like all the other conferences, but the rest of the conference just hasn't been very good, and it's kind of been that way this year. They need some other teams to, to make it into that second tier. It's not, it hasn't been Virginia Tech. It hasn't been Miami. hasn't been Pittsburgh, NC State, whoever. So that's what's really been hurting the ACC, and it, it's been the case again this year. I mean, they have, there have been some quality teams, uh, 
Pittsburgh. Uh, they're going to be eight and four. Miami finished off the, the year at least eight and four, even though they don't have too many quality wins there. If they could just get another team, another two teams to be top twenty-five programs, I think the ACC would get a lot more respect. But that's that's what haunted them the last few years. Well, let me ask you this, though. I mean, the SEC is the the conference that's perceived as having great depth, and this year, I guess, the Pac-12. But couldn't you get that respect if Clemson wins a national title this year by having two of your league teams win championships out of the last three years? Uh, Absolutely, and I think you make a good point that even though the ACC hasn't been that great, I don't know if the other conferences have really been that great either. Uh, The SEC and the Pac-12 were both the most hyped coming into the year and have frankly disappointed uh you know again they might have two playoff teams each of them having a playoff team but you look down the rest of the conferences and, and nobody really seems to stand out a ton behind stanford behind uh alabama but you're right if, if they if clemson wins the national championship that's two of the last three years an acc squad has done that you would think that, that they would get some respect but we also thought they would get some respect after Florida state one we thought they'd get some respect after uh, they swept the SEC on rivalry weekend last year. Uh, I think they would probably get, a, I'm sure they would get a little bit more respect, but is it going to be that much different once the 26 season starts by, you know, week four, week five, after they play some non-conference games? I really don't know. Jared, obviously we have the ACC championship game coming up. Uh, first of all, your your thoughts on uh, what will be keys uh, for Clemson and or Carolina, and then, for our listeners here in Tallahassee, because we're all figuring out, trying to figure out where we're going to go bowling, what in the world happens if Carolina ends up beating Clemson in Charlotte on Saturday? Yeah, I think first and foremost, the keys for uh, you know for North Carolina, you got to stop the run. North Carolina doesn't do a great job of doing that. I actually let me change that. They're going to give up some rushing yards, they're going to give up some total yards. What North Carolina's been able to do. And it's kind of an overlooked stat. It's not just red zone defense, but how does your defense play once the offense gets within the 40-yard line? And North Carolina, um, you know, it's been a week or two since I last checked, but they have been one of the best teams in the country at limiting teams to score once they get inside the 40-yard line. That's what they're going to have to do for North Carolina. I think you just can't turn the football over. There are two toughest games, the loss of South Carolina and the, the close win against Virginia Tech is because they made terrible turnovers in situations where you just can't do it. South Carolina, uh, the interceptions in the red zone against Virginia Tech, they have two fourth-quarter fumbles when they have a 14-point lead. And even this past Saturday, they let NC State get back in the game because of some costly turnovers. So Clemson is going to turn the football over, it looks like. That's what they've done over the second half of the season. North Carolina just can't give the ball back to them. North Carolina does win. I think it, it almost certainly shuts out Florida State. Uh, from New York Six Bowl, right now you're thinking if Clemson wins, uh, you know if they win handily, I think you see Florida State probably end up in the, the Chick Fil A Bowl. If not, it kind of seems like maybe the Russell Athletic Bowl wouldn't really be interested in Florida State, considering the Seminoles are going to build camp, basically set up shop in Orlando over the next few months. Uh, it'd be really interesting to see where they would end up. But obviously, the hope for Florida State fans is that they're going to head up the road to Atlanta. We were talking with uh, Jared Shanker from ESPN. Let me, I'll, I'll give you the question, Keith. But uh, for context, folks, for those just tuning in, we're actually taping this on Tuesday prior to the release of the college football rankings. As it relates to this, where Carolina falls, I don't know how much that matters because to me the question becomes if Carolina beats Clemson, do they get in? But go ahead with you. Well, and that was my question just for clarification. Uh, Jared, if you know, you know, by all accounts, even if Clemson wins – Florida State should be still in the top 12 of the college football rankings. Mm. Doesn't that guarantee them uh, the big six? And even if, if if North Carolina was to win and Clemson and Florida State were within the top 12, don't they still get New Year's Day bowls? How, how, do, well, how might that shake out, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a little bit of confusion. And the problem is because the bowls rotate, it, it depends every year as to who might, um, how many of those outlarge teams are going to be. There's still, a, for some of the bowls, there still are some conference tie-ins. Uh, the Sugar Bowl is going to look for a Big 12 team, an SEC team. The Rose Bowl is still going to look for a Big 10 team against a Pac-12 team if, if it's possible. So even though Florida State would still be in really good position, maybe in, in some years, to get a New York Six Bowl, 
might not be the case this year, especially with the Orange Bowl being one of the semifinals that takes away right, right. The, the ACC automatic entry there. So maybe in most years, you might have Clemson in the playoff, an ACC team in the Orange Bowl, and then maybe another at-large spot there. But because of the rotation this year, Florida State might not, probably wouldn't get in uh, if it was the third ACC team because there still are a couple of tie-ins that are going to take away from that large spot. Yeah, so the best-case scenario for FSU in terms of bigger, better bowl is Clemson wins, and that's better for the ACC anyway because you get a team in the playoff. Is there a scenario where North Carolina wins and they can make the playoff, Jared, in your mind? And if so, what what's the scenario? I mean, how much do they have to win by? I, I think it's a, I think there is a scenario. It ultimately comes down to it. Now, we know that the committee places its biggest emphasis on conference championships. They've said that before. It's in their uh, doctrine, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the Magna Carta of the, of the college football playoff. But we're going to see just how much emphasis that they're really going to put on that if North Carolina does beat Clemson and wins the ACC. Um, because as of now, they've really harped on the loss of South Carolina and the two FCS teams, and that's not going to change. So basically their resume is going to be a win over Clemson and not much else. The next best win is a, a road win at Pittsburgh, who really didn't do North Carolina any favors by losing on Friday to Miami. Really, what, what North Carolina is going to need is beat Clemson. I think beat them at least. You know, it would be it would behoove them to beat them convincingly, obviously, and then hope for Stanford to lose. I think Stanford and UNC would probably be up for that that final spot. Ohio State still in the picture, and because Ohio State didn't drop all that much. When they lost to Michigan State, you see that the committee still is, does like Ohio State. Uh, I'm thinking maybe it's on advanced metrics that are telling them Ohio State is really good because if you look at their resume, it's not overly impressive. And then you obviously factor in a loss to Michigan State backup quarterback in the horseshoe. But Ohio State's still in the picture. But I think it would come down to Stanford if, if Stanford wins the Pac-12 championship and North Carolina. And it's really hard to say, but I wouldn't be shocked at all if, if they gave the nod to a two-loss Stanford over uh, one-loss ACC champion North Carolina. Yeah, that would be really interesting if it unfolded that way. I'm going to do FSU a favor right now in terms of selling tickets by pointing out that both North Carolina and Clemson are on the home football schedule for 2016. So just <laughs> just make note of that because North Carolina, even though they're going to lose uh, some key players, uh, is going to be really, really good next year. And obviously Clemson will be too with Deshaun coming back. I don't want to have the um, – the four-team versus eight-team playoff debate, Jared, because we could do hours and hours on that. But if we're going to stay in this four-team model, would you be in favor of the the Power Five conferences getting together and just drawing up, uh, you know, making everybody play by the same rules, i.e., every conference is going to have a championship game, make the Big 12 do it. Every conference is going to play the same amount of conference opponents. Every, every league's allowed to play one FCS or whatever. So at least we're kind of judging apples and apples a little more. You could even require that you be a ch- – all things being equal, the, the, the playoff berth goes to the team that is the conference champion. Not, not we'll give consideration to it, but we would mandate it. Would you be in favor of more consistency across the board like that? I'd be in favor of a little more consistency, but I'm not in favor of uh, a complete dictation of what – college teams need to do this isn't the nfl i don't think it needs to be the nfl i think if, if some conferences think it's best for them to do it one way and others think it's best for it to do it the other way and that seems to be the case with, with the new autonomy i'm fine with that i would like to see maybe something with the conference games whether all teams go to eight all teams go to nine i think that would be a good idea um i think at least as far as the non-conference scheduling goes i think ultimately that might just shake itself out on its own if programs are seeing that the committee has really taken strength of schedule into and at a conference schedule into account, then maybe we're just going to see teams schedule better. And I think you've seen uh, teams scheduling a little bit better. It might take a few more years because, unfortunately, uh, these non-conference games are scheduled so far in advance. And I was talking to the North Carolina AD, Bubba Cunningham, uh, on Sunday, and he had said the same thing, that North Carolina is going to be in a little bit of trouble because they weren't scheduling for a playoff. They were scheduling for a BCS system where maybe there wasn't as much of a um, emphasis put on non-conference scheduling. So I think the biggest thing is maybe just conference opponents. I think the SDS, non-SDS stuff, that doesn't really bother me. If you want to play one SDS school, uh, I don't think it's a huge deal. Um, 
And then overall, I think the less regulation, the better. Just maybe conference games is, is about it. All right, well said. Good insight, uh, Jared. Appreciate uh, you joining us. Appreciate uh, what you do for college football and the ACC. Thanks, thanks so much. Anytime, guys. All righty, Jared Shanker from uh, ESPN, and uh, we don't have a lot of time to react. You look like you want to say something before I go to break. I was just saying what we're finding is that uh, the the abilities and the insight of uh, folks that we're having the opportunity to interact and get to know uh, is, is exponentially growing because uh, we're, we're able to tap in with some folks that uh, have some real good insight as to what's going on. I thought you were going to say and exponentially better than ours, which, which I'll throw on the table as well. Well, yeah. Okay, we'll come back, finish up the front row after this. Listening to the front row with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Got a question? Email them at the front row at 979ESPNRadio.com. Here's Tom and Keith. Two minutes left, Keith. What uh, problems have we not solved yet that we should try to tackle in this remaining 120 seconds? Don't know about problems. Just uh, maybe we can start putting in our uh, Christmas wishes. I, I really, really hope Clemson beats North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess, you know, we only talked about it briefly with Tim, but uh, you are headed to Iowa, and uh, that game will tip in a couple of hours uh, To uh, because, again, we're taping this. But uh, you'll be there courtside. What do you think? FSU's had eight days off, and to me, the area they need to get better is pretty obvious. It's team defense. But I'm wondering how much they were able to to do that in these seven or eight days. The the key to that part is that they got some time back on the practice court because down in the Virgin Islands, they were basically unable to practice. You you look at tape and you do walkthroughs. So uh, Leonard gave them a couple days off because of the holiday, but they've been able to get some practice time. And now you've played five games. You know what that looks like. You know just like uh, as as Linnefelt was talking about with, with for example with Dwayne, you know we really took Hosper too lightly. We got to be more respectful opponent. Well, we got to play better defense. We know we got to play better defense. I think over the last three or four days on the court, they've been able to work on playing better defense, and and as a result, I expect them to play better defense uh, against Iowa. Let's see how that plans out. Well, and if they can get the win tonight, I think that'll start to open some eyes a little bit uh, in terms of the talent there. Certainly they're going to have a big stage tonight as part of this ACC Big Ten showdown. Yep, they will. And then they've got a great follow-up opportunity against VCU in Atlanta uh, simply because you know everybody knows who VCU is, even though Shaka is no longer the, the head coach there. So uh, it's a couple of games this week that uh, from a national perspective could change and start enlightening some people people hopefully florida state will take advantage of them and uh i am uh, fortunate enough to i'll be with you for that vcu game on uh, sunday in atlanta since gene will be with the bucks all right we're out of time we do this uh, each and every wednesday um what what time do you suspect you're getting back tonight from uh, probably about 1 well, if i had to guess wednesday night thursday morning i'll probably back uh, probably about 27 to 2 27 to, yeah about 133 that's what i thought all right folks have a great week thanks for joining us on the front row hey.